Hi, Radio Nerds. I'm Dave Williams. I met Walter Sabo in 2011 when I was hired to uh, be an on-air talent for the uh, radio station that he and Randy Michaels were putting together in Chicago. It was a great, great time. Didn't last long enough as far as I was concerned, but uh, man, what a great city and a wonderful project that was. Walter is an interesting guy. He's a famed innovator of media programming, marketing, and executive management, and has been for many years. His resume includes programming vice presidencies at ABC and NBC. He consults Sirius Satellite Radio and has worked with top-name talents and corporations across the country. Seriously, if I uh, ran down his entire list of achievements, it would take longer than our conversation. As I said, he's an interesting guy, and he's got some surprising insights. Here he is, the great Walter Sabo. And then I also see you referred to as Walter Sterling, which I know is your your other name. It's yep. the radio name. Oh, is that the name you use on the air? Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought it was the other way around. And it was on, we were on WBAP for a very long time. Really? Here in Dallas? Live. When did, when did that change? Um, when your company lost its sense of humor. <laughs> I'm not well, sure they ever had one. Let's, what, two and a half years ago. Let's change your company to that company. Yeah, I retired yesterday. This is the best day of your life. I resigned, I should say. I don't like to use the word retirement because did you retire or resign? Well, retirement to me implies you're going to, you know, sit on the porch in a rocking chair or just sit in front of the TV. And I don't know. I like to keep busy and I like to do uh, more of the kind of thing that I've been doing for the last 55 years. But the whole technology has changed so much. The whole game, the industry has changed so much. And uh, I'd like to get your, your views on all of that. This morning in the shower, I anticipated what you would ask me. And that was the one thing I knew you'd ask me. So it's the only thing I have an answer for. Okay. The industry hasn't changed at all. The points of stress are different. Things that we didn't worry about when you and I started, you worry about now. Things that we worried about constantly, we don't worry about now, like license renewal. Think about how much energy, time, and sweat was put into the three-year license renewal when we started and how those files had to be right, right and how your FCC lawyer was hovering over you. You you don't hear about license renewals now. I would say the biggest, two biggest changes in the industry are this. One is, and this is never talked about, it's the elimination of marketing budgets. The elimination of marketing budgets is the absolute worst thing that could happen to radio in terms of its face to the public because of all of the competitive factors. It couldn't have been come at a worse time. Oh, and then we better cut out that research budget. All right, so let's fly blind and make sure nobody knows where the airport is. Then the other thing is um, our colleagues whine about consolidation. Consolidation is the best thing that happened to radio because of a statistic that that is not remembered. And the statistic is this. Before consolidation, half of the radio stations in America lost money. Hmm. Every year, the NAB would put out a, a, a tally of the radio stations losing and making money. And it was always half were losing money. Well, there are very few stations losing money today because instead of 20 different physical plants, 10 stations are down the hall. 
that has saved a tremendous amount in terms of our infrastructure cost, our real estate cost. It is much cheaper to run a radio station. And then you throw in digital versus analog equipment, and there are far more stations that are um, profitable than not. The other, the, the bad thing that happened in all of that was the change in the financial requirements. Because it used to be when it was three-year license renewals or seven-year license renewals, a potential licensee had to prove they had money in the bank for the length of that license. There was, And there was no deficit financing of radio stations. You could not get rid of those licenses until they expired. And uh, there was no speculative investment in radio. There was no Wall Street investment in radio. It was not allowed. And and even if it was allowed, no Wall Streeter would want to be in an industry they couldn't bail on at any given moment. And you couldn't bail on a radio station license until the change in those laws. Those are the two big things, how it gets financed and the incredible lack of marketing dollars. Yeah, that lack of marketing dollars. Uh, and, and as you said, research has really changed the game to the point where uh, anybody who's been in the business for any period of time can listen to a station and go, well, why aren't they plugging this show? Or why aren't they fixing this show? You know, uh, and you're right. It it seems to me that it's just a matter of flying blind. I've worked here in uh, Dallas at the same station for 11 plus years, and we never had a single, uh, any single marketing uh, effort made on our behalf and on behalf of our show. And then the same pundits who have cut out the marketing budgets are saying, well, the medium's dying. Young people aren't interested. They're not discovering music here. We're not word of mouth. Well, uh, you're not, we're not telling anyone we're there. There's no no education of the fact that we are here. Right. And the whole, the whole thing about research. I remember we used to sit down with, uh, you know, people who, who uh, that was their entire their entire life and their entire business was to do in-depth research the way politicians right. do right. and uh, find out who your target audience is, what they like, what they don't like, and so forth and so on. And now we just have people guessing. Uh, and I hate to say it, but a lot of, seems to me that a lot of programmers today, uh, have jobs where they're, uh, doing all these meetings and trying to, uh, somehow run three or four different radio stations at the same time. And they really don't even know how to do one because they never really understood the art and the craft of radio. Right. And it is at this point that it's easy to go down the rabbit hole of things used to be better. Yeah. Things were not better. They were different, but they were not better. Our relationship with the listener, the medium's relationship with the listener is exactly the same as it always was. It's in the car, it's under the pillow, it's on the kitchen table. It's, the, the relationship is is the same and unchanged. And oddly, um, the, the perception is such that virtually every press release that comes out of Nielsen, Dave, virtually every press release says, radio's doing just fine, thank you. And yeah. Nielsen seems to be the most shocked by this. Every press release says, you won't believe how good radio's doing. <laughs> yeah, I would. It's the most elegant distribution system of any mass medium. It's elegant. It's incredible. And it's not legacy media. It's proven media. It's been around for over 100 years. Well, 
nothing's around for over a hundred years unless it works. So you you don't I, I'm I'm drawing a conclusion here based on what you've said. You don't seem to think that uh, uh, you know the the technology is is dying. This the brick and stick means of broadcasting. There couldn't be a more elegant way to distribute. Because if you want to stream something on your computer, well, good luck. You have to invest $3,000, pay $50 to $100 a month for the Internet. And most online streaming that I know of is is branded with buffering now. Usually when I click on something, it says buffering now. When I turn on the radio in the car, it just works. Yeah. You, uh, you are, ex- you are very unique in that, uh, uh, you're, you're essentially a, a programmer, but you're also on the air, still on the air. And you've got a, you've got a huge stick, WABC. And, uh, I'm, I'm interested in that. Why do you do it? I was blessed. I had the best suit and tie wingtip shoe. career imaginable. I had the privilege of giving advice and consulting the the greatest media companies of our time, from Condé Nast to the Wall Street Journal, RKO General, ABC. I was blessed. And I did it for a long time. And then I'm sitting at lunch with Chris Olivero, the head of programming for CBS Radio, eight years ago. And uh, we're having lunch, and we're speculating on what I should do. And I looked at Chris. I said, well, you're the head of programming at CBS Radio. But, Chris, you and I both know I should be the head of programming at CBS Radio. (laughs) And he laughed, and he knew I was right. And I said, so figure out what I should do. And he did that. He said, do you ever think of doing a talk show? I said, well, that was my first job out of college. I was, again, really lucky. I was a talk show host at WORFM yeah. when I was 20, and then at WNBC-FM when I was 22. That's how I started my career. But I had a primary goal at the time, and the primary goal was to not leave New York City. And I knew the odds of me working in New York City for the next 50 years as a talk show host were zero. Uh, and and so I evolved my career out of being on the air. But when the, the opportunity presented itself by Chris, it wasn't my idea, it was Chris's idea. Uh, I said, well, okay, but you don't have a talk station in New York City. And he said, yeah, but I got one in Philadelphia and you're going on it. And so I've been on it for nine years and I have the best time. I'm particularly interested in this in this aspect of your career because uh, uh, today just happens to be November 2nd, and it was last night that the Texas Rangers here in Dallas-Fort Worth uh, won the World Series. And, and I'm thinking about the, their manager, Bruce Bochy, and some of the things that I've heard uh, over the years about about uh, sports in general, but certainly about baseball in particular, and that is the ones who are really, really great managers and coaches were sort of mediocre players or less. And uh, you seem to be succeeding at both. And I wonder if you ever catch yourself um, going, you know what, I should have done this differently, or I should have, I should have done that better, or 
you know, I'm, I'm as good as I'm ever going to get or, or something along those lines. Do you, do you find yourself stepping aside and listening and criticizing yourself? The reason I hesitated to go on the air again was because of that. I knew too much. Yeah. And I knew that my ears would be horrible to my ego and it would be painful to listen to a show. And, and it is every word I think I could do better. And therefore I listen to the show maybe once every three months. How about uh, how about the rest of the industry in terms of uh, talk radio today? How it has evolved over the years, uh, where it where it is now, and where it has been. Uh, you know, you could generalize, you can be very specific if you like. Uh, what makes a good talk show and, and good talk show hosts? A good talk show is one that gets ratings. Yeah, it's real simple. Uh, it has nothing to do with me listening. It has to do with is it getting ratings? Some of the worst radio worst radio that radio guys have ever heard had the biggest ratings and um some good examples bernard meltzer bernard meltzer did a midday show on wor on the weekends he got boxcar shares they put him on seven days a week because he got ratings and if you and i were to listen to you'd say this is the worst thing i ever heard (laughs) And Bernard Meltzer gave uh, love and financial advice, and he had no expertise in either. He died broke. And when he was on the air and he'd take off his headphones, the toupee would come off with it. (laughs) And very often the slickest presentation you've ever heard doesn't get numbers because it rolls off the ear of of a listener. It doesn't stick to a listener. The... uh, there were two talk radios. There was before satellite and after satellite. And before satellite, Dave, you'll remember that until about 1980, there were only 48 full-time talk stations in America. That's, That's right. it. There were yeah. only 48 of them. And they were hyper-local. And they got 10, 20, 30 shares because each of them put up a perfect mirror to that city. And what the satellite did is it made it economically possible for more and more stations to uh, join the format, but it diminished the shares because it was less and less and less local. And there's no point in somebody saying, well, you know, all of our hosts are local and we're 100% local all the time. It doesn't matter if they don't talk the talk. If every second you you should be able if it's a local host, you should be able to listen to that host for 60 seconds and know exactly which city that that host is in. The the local references should be nonstop and the tone and the attitude should should mirror the city perfectly. The reason why 1010 wins is such an insane 55 year success is because it sounds like New York. You know, it sounds like the angriest newsroom in the world. And I've come to learn it is the angriest newsroom in the world. How about uh, the new brand of I, I, I don't know if this is uh, unique to sports talk, but it's what I tend to listen to because I didn't spend so much time reading news and talking about news, current events that I uh, listen to a lot of sports talk. And and uh, as much as I love uh, the, the the subject matter, I, I hear very relatively little of it. What I hear is three or four guys in a room talking and joking and slapping and yucking and 
And, uh, you know, in many cases, they're ignoring the audience. As far as I'm concerned, I can tune in and listen for 10 minutes and not know what the hell they're talking about. And I do understand that I'm not their target audience. I'm a little bit beyond that uh, in terms of age. But I'm just wondering if the, if the nature of the, of the craft is changing. But as you said, people haven't changed. Listeners are not changing, right? The template for sports talk stations today was created by Tom Bigby at WIP about 25 years ago. And he realized that no one wants to hear box scores. They, they want a sports bar. What he created on WIP was a sports bar mm. and he forbade them from giving stats. They weren't allowed to give stats. They were allowed to talk uh, unless the stats were on a cheerleader. They could talk about those. <laughs> That's what he created. It was incredibly successful when Tom ran it. It's still incredibly successful. And that has been the copied model. What I don't understand about talk radio, and it's really weird. You and I are in an industry that's obsessed with copying. Like, you know, if I if I bring to an owner or a general manager a new idea, the first question will be, who else is doing it? Where else is it being done? That's the worst question possible because it means it's going to be a copy, and a copy is never as good as the original. Why sign up for that? Well, for an industry obsessed with copying, I don't understand why it's obsessed with copying failure. Traditional talk shows where they scream at the Democrats, are failing. And they have been failing for over 10 years. Meanwhile, the stations that talk about our day, about trouble with the parent-teacher conference, why won't the check engine light ever go out, how do I deal with my sister-in-law who really controls my marriage, those conversations like on KMBZ-FM, on KFI most of the day, hopefully on my show, those conversations get much bigger ratings and much younger ratings. And, and why that's not copied, I don't know. But when I put on real radio in Orlando and when I put on New Jersey 101.5, we, we never talked about politics. Why would you talk about politics? There are only two answers. Right. There are only, why would you do 24 hours a day of only two answers and no new information? Uh, meanwhile, I thought the most fascinating Rush Limbaugh ever was when he was when he talked about his cats. When he talked about what? I'm sorry. His cats. His cats. I guess I must have missed that. I listened to him for maybe a total of one hour of my life. Yeah, really. I worked with him, you know, for a long time. Well, he's a wonderful guy. He was a yeah. wonderful man. Yeah. And we share a manager and I am blessed. Well, I think you maybe have just just answered the question for me, but uh, I was going to ask you uh, where do you think uh, where do you think the political aspect of talk radio is headed? We're going to get more of it? Are we going to get less of it? I can't understand why anybody would sign up for failure because all it's going to do is generate ancient demographics. Why does it generate ancient demographics? It's not because the audience is fascinated by that. It's because it eliminates anybody under 65 and attracts people who, listen carefully, who want something talking. They yeah. want the companionship of a voice in a box. That's who most AM talk stations attract. And 
those people are often too infirm to get up and change the station. Mm. Congratulations. What a great format you have signed up for. Meanwhile, until 1982, the 48 talk stations in America talked about their day. The hosts talked about their day. They talked about trouble with the, the uh, trouble in the newspaper, trouble at school, trouble with the car, trouble with their spouse, trouble with getting the house clean. They talked about that. When WOR was the number one radio station in America in billing and audience, in billing and audience for 50 years, 50 years, the host talked about their day. You go listen to air checks of WOR from 1978. Those are talking about, you know, I, I can't believe they're knocking on my door when we're on the air because you see, most of those shows came from their homes mm-hmm. and, um, and it worked. And all the other stations like the GNs and KDKAs and uh, WSBs, they talked about their day. The power of the mirror. There's nothing more. You you know, Dale Carnegie, talk about them. It's simple. If it does that, the medium will thrive. But what happened? Here's what happened. Until 1982, daytime TV consisted of game shows and soap operas. That's all there were, game shows and soap operas. And then Phil Donahue went on and Sally Jesse Raphael and Jerry Springer, and Oprah. And what did they talk about? Their day. The host talked about their day. The guests talked about their day and celebrity gossip and how to get along and took all of the topics that had driven radio talk shows and put them on TV. And now that's a $4 billion industry. We handed up, we gave away $4 billion in revenue, gave it away. Those are our topics, and they're being done on TV. And we do them better because we can take phone calls. I wonder if the industry isn't forgetting about that. You know, maybe doesn't recognize it, or maybe there's such a push coming down from the top in, you know, the No, I, Dave, I, I don't think there's any push coming down from the top. I think the top's just worried about uh, how to make their uh, investors happy. Right. I have, you know, I've been doing this for, I've been doing a talk show for nine years. Never once have I even gotten a whisper from corporate about what to talk about. And I don't think anybody else is either. Well, I guess you're probably right. I, I, what I'm trying to understand is, is uh, why isn't it, uh, why isn't it generally remembered? Who else or- is doing it? Where else is it being done? Right. Who else well, is doing it. Where is that being done? That's what happened the, to it is what I'm getting at. You know, why isn't uh, why are there there stations that you're talking about and uh, and and WGN in Chicago that has owned that city by being the smallest, uh, the small, the the biggest small town radio station it used in the to country. Be. It yeah, used it used to be. be right, but it used to be. yeah, but why why did it used to be? Why did it change? And I'm not trying to pick on WGN, but the industry as a whole. So you said there were 48 stations talking about, uh, you know, talking about what's going on in the community and talking about their day. It's it's gone. Why is that? Because they could get free programming from the satellite, which talked about politics, yeah. could not talk about local issues, and that's how it devolved. How do you feel about the future of the industry? 
The future is more than fine. The great thing about a radio station is it's unmolded clay. We can make it into anything we want it to be, anything. And the listener knows how to access it, how to turn it on, how to enjoy it. They understand it's ubiquitous. We have the best distribution system. No medium comes close. We have the broadest distribution system. There there are more homes with radios than are homes with TVs. The magazines have vanished. Most newspapers have vanished. We're it. And it can be whatever we want to be. And therefore, I remain incredibly optimistic. I believe that to be a programmer in radio, to be on the air in radio, you must be optimistic or else you couldn't come to work. You must be optimistic. The tragedy is that a salesperson, their day is spent with negotiators. Their day is spent with media buyers, advertising buyers who are paid to negotiate down the rate. Well, how do they do that? They do it by disparaging the media. And they'll do it with a newspaper, a magazine, direct mail. That's their job. But at at the end of it, how hard can it be to sell something whose job to, to somebody whose job title is buyer. Yeah. Those people have cards that say buyer. Well, they have to buy something, but it, it means at the end of a salesperson's day, they've heard negative, 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 negative all day. All day they've heard negative about the medium and then they get promoted to market manager, market president. And they come with the baggage of negativity from all of those buyers, from the mind share buyers. And those buyers have taught them the negative language. In the rest of the world, in the rest of the world, Dave, salespeople don't get to run the stations. The stations are run by, um, what's the word I want? People with a renaissance view of the world and programmers. I For years, I consulted Standard Broadcasting of Canada, owned by the Slate family, who are fantastic broadcasters. But they had 89 radio stations. And I said to him once, I said, all your general managers, their last job was program director. I said, why do you only promote program directors? Why don't you promote salespeople? And he looked at me, he said, because they'll just F it up. <laughs> And in the rest of the world, the radio companies are run by programmers and by people with a big vision. They're they're never run by salespeople. I was sitting at the NAB Europe once, which, by the way, you should go to because the food is much better than the NAB here. And I'm at the NAB Europe, and I'm sitting next to the woman who runs the number one talk station in Athens, Greece. Mm -hmm. And I said to her, do you ever have problems with content and the government? Are there things you can't say because of the government? Are you afraid of the government imposing rules? And she looked at me like I was insane. Like, really? Like, what? What are you, what are you talking about? And I said, well, and she said, no, we don't worry about that at all because we put them into power and we can take them out of power. And I'm like, yes, that's a broadcaster, and we can do the same darn thing. What about uh, the demographics? How do we get young people to be turning on radios again? We do fine. Yeah? 
Yeah, the CHR station in Dallas and Houston, they're all doing just fine. And it is it remains the primary source of music discovery, as if that's a goal. Why is it my job to discover, help you discover music? I don't know, but that seems to be very important to people who do research. And the fact is, is that it is the primary source for music discovery. Mm. We attract young people just fine. All right. Seemed like there was something else I wanted to ask you about, and I just don't remember what it was. So, uh, well, you've never looked better. Well, thank you. You know, I just came through a big health scare. What was that? I, uh, I had a, uh, I had what, the, what they're referring to as a seizure, but it was a blackout. I came out of a restaurant with my wife on an afternoon, nice sunny afternoon. And next thing I knew, I was being loaded into the back of an ambulance. Did you and get I, the vaccine? Huh? Did you get the vaccine? I've gotten, I've gotten four shots. <laughs> you know who else had exactly the same incident was Greg Tanum. Do you know Greg? Yeah, I talked with Greg just a short time ago. Did he tell you about that? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly the same. No nothing bef- no foretelling, nothing after. But just- I hadn't had the I hadn't had the vaccine for a year at that point. Doesn't matter. But this uh, was the worst thing we could have done. Well. Anyway, I've been cleared. They've done all the tests they possibly can. They've scanned my brain 15 different ways and same with my heart and everything. And the, and the cardiologist and the neurologist agree. He said, there's nothing that we can find that's anything wrong with you. Probably just one of these things that happens to people probably will never happen again. And all, all, although we don't know what caused it, we do know what it was not. You didn't have a heart attack. You don't have, you didn't have a, a stroke. You don't have a brain right, same tumor. Thing Exact same thing that happened to Greg. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, you know, that kind of hastened me along the way of getting off the 2.30 a.m. wake up. Good uh, for you. Don't go back to work. Yeah. Thank you, Walter. It's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed this. You're you're a fascinating guy. You've got so much to say about uh, so many aspects of of the industry. I'd like to talk with you again. We have the privilege of working for the best industry. So thank you for your time, Dave, and thank you for thinking I could contribute. Thanks. All right. Take care. Have a good day.